And welcome back to Dads on the Air, coming to you around Australia on the Community Radio Network. In this program, we bring you informing and entertaining conversations with a wide range of interesting people on topics of fatherhood, family and parenting, and men's and boys' issues. Hi, I'm Bill Cable, and our very special guest today is Dr. Warren Farrell. Dr. Farrell is the author of books published in 17 languages. They include two award-winning international bestsellers, Why Men Are the Way They Are, plus The Myth of Male Power, and his latest book written with Dr. John Gray, The Boy Crisis. Warren has been chosen by the Financial Times as one of the world's top 100 thought leaders. Dr. Farrell is currently the chair of the Commission to Create a White House Council on Boys and Men, He's the only man in the U.S. to have been elected three times to the board of the National Organization for Women in New York City. He has started more than 300 men's and women's groups, including those joined by John Lennon and co-author Dr. John Gray. Warren, welcome to Dads on the Air. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to speak with you again. On the cover of your new book, The Boy Crisis, there is a silhouetted figure of a boy falling from a height. This indicates uh, that it's serious and that we need to act quickly. Is There's no doubt about that, is there? Absolutely no doubt about it. I have to say the 11 years that it took me to research the boy crisis every day, uh, I didn't know that I became more excited about what I was learning or more deeply sad about how uh, the degree to which the boy crisis is a global crisis, meaning that I found that in all 60 of the developed countries, boys were falling significantly behind girls in every academic subject, in psychological health and emotional health, you know, in mental health, propensity for suicide, depression, um, in their um, social skills, that is, uh, ability to create friends and retain friendships, the likelihood of committing suicide, and their economic potential, uh, which is really disastrous because uh, women don't have a, an inclination to marry boys and men that are reading um, the boy crisis in the unemployment line. If they're in the unemployment line, that and boys are increasingly likely to be in the unemployment line because they're more likely to drop out of high school and so on. And uh, boys who drop out of high school have about a 20% chance of being in an unemployment line. And so there's, um, it's really a disaster um, because. You know, we all care about our daughters, and we all, uh, for our daughters who are heterosexual, we all want them to have a man who's worthy of their love. And many, t- many boys around the the world will not will not feel to our daughters like they are worthy of their love. And this, this becomes a disaster for our daughters, our sons, and um, and certainly, um, oftentimes, uh, I found that the single biggest cause of the boy crisis, uh, out of ten causes is um, a minimal uh, amount of time with fathers or a lack of uh, time with fathers. And when um, and when a family isn't married or when they're divorced, they tend to not have very much father involvement, and that tends to lead to boys doing much worse. That then leads to boys, these boys not being able to be married and um, be a father themselves or be a father but not be able to see their children, and the cycle continues. So we really have a major uh, worldwide uh, global crisis that is, um, you know, that, be, that confronts us. Yes, and it, it's demonstrated in a number of areas. Uh, you, you point to ISIS and you point to boys forming gangs and 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 I think you you summarize that by saying there's a purpose void a dad deprivation and there's this uh, hero versus health intelligence which uh, which all play a part in us yes they do um, the, the purpose void um, since you mentioned that first I'll take that first boys um, historically speaking 
our you know our fathers and our grandfathers had a, a sense of purpose, and those senses senses of purpose were two rigid senses of purpose. Um, one was you could become a warrior and become a hero, or alternatively, you could become a sole breadwinner, or you could do some combination of both. And so if a boy did do that, um, he was respected, was considered successful if he did it well. Um, and um, if he didn't do it, he was considered a loser or, you know, just um, not respected. And, um, and so the good news is boys have less rigid senses of purpose today. They have... Um, uh, the ability to you know, there there are fewer boys percentage wise required to go into war and possibly risk their lives at least by a draft um, uh, registration and then the, secondly there are fewer boys that are required to be sole breadwinners women are uh, alleviating that burden from from many uh, boys and men and so uh, that's the good news the bad news is that uh, they often don't have a sense of purpose that's really clear like it was in the old days and um, and and so if without a cultural sense of purpose and without a father they have no the father without the father they don't have boys don't have a role model to be able to guide them to finding their new possible less rigid senses of purpose which would be some combination of discovering who their unique self is on the one hand and discovering how to be responsible um, as future breadwinners or at least partial breadwinners or at least contributors to the family. And um, so that's the blend that a father needs to help guide a child through. A mother can be helpful in that regard, um, but she cannot provide a male role model to that to that end, and she's more, less likely to to provide the, uh, the boundary enforcement uh, that requires boys to be able to um, postpone their gratification that allows them to fulfill uh, whatever their sense of purpose is. And so this is um, part of the challenge. Girls, on the other hand, through the women's movement, have, they bec have become multi-option women. They, are, they have the option to raise children full-time, to raise money full-time, or do some combination of both. And so we've so girls have two rudders, if you will, that boys tend not to have. Boys who are fatherless tend not to have. One rudder is the rudder of multiple options that allow them to to match their personality more toward their toward what they would like to do with their with their life. And the second thing is a, as a mother to guide them through uh, the maze of life to. Um, to, to show what, what a female can do with those, well, with those options. Boys who don't have fathers don't have the father to do that guiding of what a male um, can do with those options and don't have a cultural permission to be a full-time dad and be um, thought of as being um, a, a desirable mate uh, if, he, if, his, if he doesn't have uh, an employment possibility, but he can be a full-time dad. There are some... I find amazing statistics in your new book, The Boy Crisis, just as there were in the in your previous works. But I mean, one that struck me particularly was that the sperm count is now for for young men is now half what their grandfathers had at the same age, and it's dropping at one point five percent a year. What? Where are we heading on this? Yes, yeah, so there are so many um, physical health differences also for boys both the sperm count, um, also their IQs are falling as, a, as on average uh, globally. They are they're increasingly likely to commit suicide as they get older in relation to girls. So, for example, 
um, boys and girls who are age um, nine commit suicide at equal numbers to each other. Uh, between 10 and 14, uh, boys' suicide rate goes to twice what girls is. Between 15 and 19, four times what girls is. And between 20 and 24, uh, five and a half times what girls is. So you you get a sense of, as to what the combination of testosterone combined uh, with the male role, the, the toll that it takes on not all boys, but on, on many boys. Obviously, most boys don't commit suicide, but the suicide is just the extreme version of the the enormous amount of depression, withdrawal, rudderlessness, um, alienation that, that so many boys are experiencing around the uh, the world today. And interestingly, you point out that uh, when women are expected to perform in the same role as in, say, the military, the suicide rate becomes almost as high as males. That would seem to be a pointer to what we should be doing. Yes. Um, when, you know, when uh, our role, when the stresses are the same, the suicide rate gets very much closer to each other. So it does indicate that it's not just a gender thing because you're a boy and because you have testosterone, but uh, because the amount of stresses that boys have on them. And it's, it's a complicated combination of stresses, too. Um, I, I talk in, in the Boy Crisis book about a fellow named Royce, Royce Mann, and this is a real name of a real person who did a, a huge viral video um, and where he talked about um, what he felt it was to become a boy. And he was talking about this as if did this as, as, as slam poetry. And he you know, said, um, I became, I, I knew who I was as a boy and what I would be as a man uh, the day at the age of 14 that I walked behind a woman and she looked back at me and she crossed the street. And when she crossed the street, I knew that she was perceiving me as a future attacker. And um, and therefore, I did not want to become a man. I wanted to become a Peter Pan. And so here's a boy who's 14 years of age, and he's and he's fearing becoming a man because he's learned, and at the age of 14, that what a man is is not an attacker, but uh, partially, but mostly an attacker. And so this image that many boys are picking up about themselves is creating an enormous amount of shame. And so when boys get into college, in particular, and they try to explain what their perspective on something is, uh, oftentimes they'll be told, listen, uh, you're just a white male, you have privilege, especially if you're a white male, uh, that you have privilege and, um, and that you shouldn't, you shouldn't be speaking up, you should be shutting up, it's women's time to speak up. And so the feelings, so boys who have already been told uh, that if you're successful, you learn to repress your feelings, not express your feelings, so that is already a way of shutting boys down. But then if on top of that, the, the, the supposed liberal and pro, supposed progressive culture is saying to them in college uh, that you're a, a male and therefore you have privilege and therefore you shouldn't be speaking up, you should be shutting up, uh, this combination of a history of being a male and shutting up combined with um, you have privilege because you're a male, you better shut up, is an extremely dangerous combination um, that can provide enormous amounts of stress on boys because it's been part of male problems that we haven't been able to speak up. It's one of the beautiful things about the sheds in, in Australia about uh, creating a space for, uh, for men to speak up about their feelings. Yes, uh, men's sheds is, has been a great success around the world and uh, I, I wonder if that is when men perhaps finally get to get that glint in their eye that you talk about and uh, you gave a, a very good example with John Lennon about... Uh, what what really might be the glint in, in a man's eye? Yes, 
I started hundreds of men's groups in the United States, and one of them um, was joined um, by John Lennon. And um, I didn't know that he had joined the group because um, I had form. I used to form groups and get them started, and then leave the groups and get other groups started, sort of Johnny Appleseed type of fashion. And this guy comes up to me at a party, and understand, I was so focused on all the stuff I was doing. I didn't have. I either didn't have a TV or um, almost never watched TV. Uh, for most of my growing up years, and um, and so this guy comes up to me at a party and says that you wore in feral, and I say uh, yes, and he says, well, you know, I joined a men's group you started, and it changed my life, and I said, well, how so? And he said, uh, well, one of the things you asked the men's group to do is to talk about what's the biggest hole in your heart. And I said the biggest hole in my heart was not having paid attention to being so preoccupied with my career. I never really paid attention to my son uh, when um, when he was growing up. And as a result, I got a divorce and had, had almost no uh, attention, um, have almost no contact with my son. And he said, I said the biggest hole in my heart is that since I'd gotten married again and my wife said she was about to have a child and it was about to be a boy, that I said um, I just wished I could take some time off and and focus on on raising him. And so he said the men's group said to me, um, well, why don't you um, just – Go ahead and have you asked your wife about this? And he said no. And he and he, he said the group pressured me to ask my wife to if if she would be okay with that. And I did. And she said fine. If that's what you want to do, go for it. And he said, but I can't do that. And he and the group says, well, why? And he and he said it because I have so many obligations. I have a lot of contractual obligations. And the group basically said they, they told me. Um, so John, what you're saying is what you own owns you. And if you, if what you own owns you, that's not much freedom, is it? Uh, and that's not a chance for you to do what you really want to do. And so, what is what is your, what is all this money for, if it isn't to be able to be free to do what you want to do? And he said, I, I agree with that in theory, but you know, try breaking these contracts. And he said, Well, the group persuaded me to at least try, and I was able to renegotiate my contracts. And he said, I don't want people to blame me for getting John Lennon to leave the Beatles. He had already left the Beatles at this point in time, but this was, but he did stop his solo career for uh, for these years. And um, and he did end up um, doing this. And by the time I, by the time I talked with him, he was almost um, the, his son uh, Sean was almost two years old. And so I said, um, Well, I, I, was this a good decision for you to leave your solo career, or you know, to leave your career to do this? I had no idea again who he was at this point. And um, he said, Yes, Warren, it was not a good decision. It was by far the best decision of my life. He said, I used to sort of write about and think about things like love, but I never really learned what love was about until I uh, raised my son. And every day I thought of somebody other than myself. I really learned how to love somebody else. And uh, he said it was you know, by far the best decision of my life. And so at that point in time, somebody came up to our table. I had just come back from my first book tour. So somebody came up and asked for, for um, what I thought was my autograph and um, and not recognizing that John Lennon was sitting next to me. And so the guy says, oh, oh, yes, yes, I'd like your autograph. I don't really know who you are, but actually it's his autograph I'd like to get first. And so John signed the autograph, and um, and I said, oh, you must be well-known. Uh, who, uh, who are you? And he goes, John Lennon. And I said, oh, now – 
aren't you a singer in a aren't you in a group actually i was proud of myself for knowing that and then he then he informed me that he was with the beatles at which point in time i was totally humiliated well i think it just shows how totally focused you were on your work at the time if uh, if you didn't recognize I'm, it. I'm afraid you're right and, and i also realized that i would have been you know very self-conscious had i known who he was during that hour and you know was i would have been conscious of the fact that you know two-thirds of the people at the party that we were at um, were sort of like looking for when his and my discussion got over with so they could talk with him. Yeah. And so um, I was very happy about that. But what it really showed me, um, you asked a question in relation to the framework of the glint in his eye. Now, here's a man that had a glint in his eye, uh, uh, well, a sadness in his eye, and he wasn't even able to be in touch with the glint in his eye, which would have been uh, the potential for, raise, uh, for raising children as a father. And I also realized that there was some part of me before that incident happened that thought that, you know, that men who were really winners, that really was able to be successful in the world, that they probably wouldn't want to be full-time fathers. And that here was the man with potentially the most enviable career in the world who said the best decision he ever made in his life was to take the t those five years off, or at, the, at that point, those two years off, um, to be a full-time dad. And uh, that really sort of helped embed in my psyche the enormous amount of, uh, of, of propensity on the part of the culture to not even give males the option of considering being a full-time dad. When, when women uh, are pregnant in a middle-class home when they're married, usually the women go ahead and they say some version of, you know, I have three options now. Is, you know, one is to raise children, one is to raise money, uh, the other is to do some combination of both. And the man says, well, I have three options too. You know, I can raise money or I can raise money. I can raise money, you know, and that's, of course, um, you know, um, not such an option. Yes, and that, that links in with what you've described as the hero paradox where uh, dads are inclined to uh, value themselves by not valuing themselves. It's a, it's a strange one. Yes, and we're told that, that we have this privilege and this power, but if you were to say to women, you have no option but to be um, work full-time as a female, and um, if there are children, you will have to increase the amount of time that you work in order to be able to provide for me as a stay-at-home dad, if I want to be a stay-at-home dad, and also to provide for uh, any ch emergencies uh, the child might have and any potential future children we might have. And we said that this is your obligation to do this because you're a female, or at least it's your expectation, or at least we'll admire and respect you more and consider you successful as a woman if you are, if you are providing this income. Women would rightly understand that this was not power and privilege, that this was pressure, and this was a form of discrimination against them. And if we said, oh, you earn more than, than men do, uh, the women would be intelligent enough to say, yes, um, we, uh, when we don't earn more when we're single. Uh, we actually earn less when we're single. But once we're married, what the truth is in the world is that it's not single it's, it's not single men who earn more than single women. Men who have never been married and never had children earn less than women who have never been married and never had children. But dads who earn more than moms. And, um, and if we reverse that, and the mothers re-earn more than the dads, and we accuse the mothers of earning more for the same work, 
the mothers would be smart enough to say, we don't earn more for the same work. We earn more because there's more uh, we're expected to earn more when we're mothers um, if the roles were reversed. Um, and so, but, but guys, we just sit back and take that as um, we, we're re- expected to earn more, and then we're blamed when we earn more as having male, more male privilege. And this is something that boys are learning as well, that to not understand all the mixed messages that are being sent to them. No one's helping them to sort this out, and that's part of the that's part of what creates the stress, that creates the depression, that creates the alienation, um, because we are not providing a world that helps boys uh, and girls, our sons and daughters, think these things through. And we're speaking today with uh, Dr. Warren Farrell, the author of The Boy Crisis. It's it's having that effect on, on our men, isn't it? But certainly the, um, the, the suicide rate in many countries has um, gone uh, significantly up for, um, for boys in places like India, where we think of usually as women being oppressed. Um, the suicide rate for males has gone up at 14 times the rate that it has for um, females. And, uh, and of course, was, was more to begin with uh, for males and females. And so there's so many things happening that is, uh, is, are not working well uh, for our sons, and particularly in school, so much of what we need to give our sons. Um, boys, when, when I grew up, I'm 74 years of age, and um, my father and myself, you know, when we grew up, if a boy was not good at school, um, he could become a mechanic or he could work with his muscle. Um, but today, the society is increasingly morphing um, from a dependency on muscle to a dependency on mind. And when a boy doesn't finish school, he doesn't have much of a chance of doing well in the culture just with his hands. Um, and um, and so he and therefore women aren't usually interested in in um, partnering with him for marriage, and especially if they have children. So that's what often leaves him like he's a loser, feeling ashamed, feeling alone, uh, withdrawing and becoming either depressed or suicidal. Or, in, you know, worst case um, examples um, you mentioned at the outset of our of the show about ISIS, and and one of the things I've discovered in researching the boy crisis is that almost all ISIS members, both male and female, the recruits, have had either no father involvement or very minimal father involvement, uh, both the boys and the girls. Um, and among um, boys who, um, among school shootings of the in the United States, uh, where there's mass um, shootings like there is not any much anymore in Australia because of our preoccupation with guns in part, the other part of the, the school shootings is that, and, and the mass shootings is that of the shootings that, had, have, that have killed eight or more people since 1948, that of those shootings, 26 out of 28 of them have been done by boys and men who did not have, uh, who had either no father involvement or very minimal father involvement, 26 out of 28. The mass shootings that involved the most people being killed between 8 and 58 have been um, by boys and men who had minimal or no father involvement. For all these uh, amazing statistics and facts and information, uh, I point everyone to the boy crisis, but not only that, but the subheading is why our boys are struggling and what we can do about it. So there are a number of things that Dr Farrell is recommending that we can do to improve the situation. Warren, uh, we've reached the stage of the show where we ask our guests to pick a song. Would you like to tell us which one you've picked and why you picked it? Chapin's um, Cats in the Cradle because it talks so touchingly about um, oftentimes the, the gap between uh, a father and a son and how um, 
a, a father um, during his years of, of fathering is oftentimes experiencing what I call the father's catch-22, that is, he learns to love his family by being away from the love of his family. And he deeply loves his son and wishes he had more time with his son, but because of his obligations to provide income, he often puts that above the time with his son. And then his son gets older, and he then um, is preoccupied with raising his children and away from the love of his family and doesn't have enough time in the process of building his career to pay attention to his dad at a point in time when his dad is retiring and is able to spend more time with his son. And so the Cats in the Cradle, um, Harry Chapin's song, I think beautifully represents that sadness uh, that is almost never articulated, but isn't articulated in that song. A child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away, and he was talking for I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm gonna be like you, Dad. You know I'm gonna be like you. And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know. I'm gonna be like him, yeah, you know I'm gonna be like him. And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then. You know we'll have a good time then. Just the other day So much like a man I just had to say Son, I'm proud of you Can you sit for a while? He shook his head And he said with a smile What I'd really like, Dad Is to borrow the car keys See you later Can I have them, please? And the cats in the cradle And the silver spoon Little boy blue And the man on the moon When you're coming home, son I don't know when But we'll get together then That was Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin, specially chosen for us today by our guest, Dr. Warren Farrell. And uh, don't forget, we'd love to hear from any of our listeners. You can go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au, and send us an email, and we'll be in touch. If you'd like to listen to this show again or any of our shows, go to that website, dadsontheair.com.au, or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. So it just remains for me now to give a very special thank you to our guest today, Dr. Warren Farrell. Warren, thank you very much for being on the program. 
been a pleasure. Really enjoyed um, talking with you, and thank you for drawing me out on this topic. And we'll be back next week with another show on Dads on the Air.